And here in the auditorium, let's continue with our Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 6. I would like to call your attention to one of the verses, the verse that will sort of be the text for today's message. And if you'll have your Bible right there in Hebrews chapter 6 and follow with me there in verse number 10, the Bible says this, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for mercy and grace that was provided to us, that you have brought us safely to another day, given us the gift of life for another day, and your mercies are new every morning, and as we celebrated earlier in our song service, great is thy faithfulness, and you have given us the privilege to be up, awake, and motivated our hearts to be in the house of the Lord today, that we might enjoy those things that are our treasures in Christ. Thank you for those that have served us thus far in today's service, those who have sung or led music, those who have played instruments, those who have prayed, those who have waited on us for our gifts, those who help us with the technology that's a part of our service, those that work in the nurseries, those that help with junior church in the programs like our children just went to, so many people. And we thank you, Father, that they facilitate our worship, they strengthen our worship, they help us, they bless us. Thank you for the song service that we enjoyed and for all the insights into the songs that were given to us. I just pray, Father, that you would use every part of today's service to nourish and enrich every believer today in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray uh, because we all understand that only you know the heart, only you know the needs of people here today. If we have anyone, perchance, in our midst who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, always I pray, Father, that the gospel message will be clear, it will be plain. For those that do know Christ, we know far and away the majority of people here today would make profession of knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And in spite of the fact, Father, that we've just been through a week of meetings, we realize that spiritual needs don't go away just because the evangelist leaves. We know that we have them. We know that different experiences in life generate them. It's only a week that we set aside for services like this, but life goes on. And the problems and difficulties that we face are real to us. And so I pray that you will minister to us in today's service. And Lord, if there is any yet ripening fruit that you desire this service to accomplish the harvest of that today, then I trust you and pray that you will bless us and encourage us. And may the word of God be glorified and have free course in our midst. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I can tell you a couple of things that are always my habit when we have special meetings. One is I make it a point never to talk to the evangelist about anything that's going on in our church. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's right. I think it's the way to let God lead and be sovereign. And if he has a message that hits somebody, well, then they can know that that was intended by God. Something else that I always try to do is, is really, I, 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 you know, you can never really anticipate how a meeting is going to go. So I never prepare my Sunday morning message for the Sunday after the meetings close ahead of time. I always wait to see the sense of the service, what direction it's going, and how I think God is leading me. But I do want to take a Sunday at least. I may have something next Sunday also, but this Sunday for sure, to do a little follow-up, we'll get away from our Sunday morning service 
series that we're on. Next Sunday, we're going to get back to that, Penetrating Questions of Jesus. We'll get back to that next Sunday morning. But today, I want to follow up a little bit and tell you about the things that God has put on my heart for this message today, which I have entitled, What Happens If I Go All In? I think that that's a natural question for all of us to ask. It's also one that I think many of us struggle with. What happens if I go all in? In other words, is there a cost to serving Christ? Is there a cost to being a Christian? And if I hear all these messages, whether it's in church on a regular basis or when the evangelist comes and God is speaking to my heart, is something that's holding me back, the struggle that I have in my heart about what it would really mean if I said yes to Jesus and went all in. Well, I can tell you from my own experience just how real that is because I can remember being 17 years old and I can remember the Lord getting a hold of my heart. I don't have time for a recitation of that whole story this morning, but you've heard me speak of this before. And I was a young man, probably not too different than a lot of teenagers are at the age of 17. I, I had some ideas, some pretty clear ideas of what I thought life would unfold to be and what I wanted it to unfold to be for me. Those things that I thought I would enjoy in life, those things, possessions that I might like to have that I thought would like make life nice for me. And then I started hearing about Christ. And I had enough sense to understand the implications of the message that I was hearing. And it was a struggle to me. Honest to goodness, I think many people here, if you would just be honest, know that this is true. It was a great struggle to me to try to overcome the thoughts that I had about what is it really going to involve if I go all in? What is really going to be involved if I trust Christ as my Savior? What path is He going to lead me? Certainly a different one that I've been thinking for my own life. What if I go all in? What happens? Well, I think the author to the Hebrews in the verse that we are looking at today addresses that very subject. And he does so by way of encouraging us. Did you kind of glean when I read that verse again? Verse number 10. That's a verse that's designed to encourage us. Look at it again. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shown toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. What happens if I go all in? Well, God is not going to be unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shown to his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Before we get to those encouragements, though, I want to talk, and don't worry, I'm going to talk about this a little while because I want to cover it in the sense that I believe God gave it to me to cover. Before we can come to the answers and assurance that are involved in this verse, I think, first of all, we have to deal with some questions and some fear. So, fellas, if you don't bring that up, we first of all, I think we have to deal with some questions and fear. Would it help you to know that, or be reminded maybe, that the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, really is written to people who struggled with the very question that I've simply put in modern parlance. What happens if I go all in? They were struggling with that. Do you remember some of the things that are written in the book? First of all, to whom was the book written? Well, it was written to Jewish people who had made profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
And now all of a sudden they're experiencing difficulties because of that. And you can imagine how that would be, particularly in the first century. Some of that really hasn't changed, you know, for someone who is a Hebrew, someone who is Jewish to trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior, sometimes involves a great deal of cost. And it was certainly true in the first century, and it was true of these believers, which is why, for example, that the author encourages them in Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast our profession. Don't give up. You need to hold firm to the faith that you've placed in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's faithful. Which is why we sang that song this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Hebrews 10 and verse 23, the exact same exhortation is given. He says, let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. What was causing them to waver? What was causing him to have to write to them? Well, because the problems and the trials that they never really envisioned or anticipated perhaps had come their way, What are some examples of those? Well, in Hebrews 10 and verse 33, the author refers to them becoming a gazing stock. How many people are standing in line for that? I'm not. I'm really not. I'm not a glutton for punishment, and I think that most of us deal with these questions and these fears. What happens if I go all in? What happens if people at work? What happens if people at school? What happens if I not make myself obnoxious, but I simply live for Christ in such a way that they can't help but notice that I'm different. And what are they going to think? What are they going to say behind my back? What what is going to happen to my reputation? This is what the writer is trying to address in this book. Sometimes becoming a gazing stock is part of that. People make fun of you. You know, that's not easy. It's not easy for teenagers. I don't really know that it's easy at any stage in life. I think maybe you get used to it a little bit more. Man, I can remember one of the first zingers that hit me as a teenager. I had a buddy, I think I've told you this story before, and I, was, I really wanted to see him come to Christ. And you have to understand, and I grew up in Charleston, I grew up south abroad, and there was a culture down there, you know, the kind of the aristocracy that sort of surrounded that place. And, you know, my buddy was an old line southern family, the Drayton name, Uh, they are old line and all that this guy was one of my friends we were in school together and he was one of the closest friends I had and so all of a sudden Coleman changes and I start going to church on Sunday not once twice and I start going to church on Wednesday night and you know if you're sort of high church they were episcopalians you know you go one sunday morning and that's what you that's your dues you know you've done that and then it's it's over with and well i remember one day being over at his house and he had an older brother i always thought he was a little difficult to deal with but nevertheless my buddy was there and he said why don't you stay for for dinner now see in the old south dinner and in that family this is how it always was dinner would be at at noon dinner would be maybe one two o'clock and so we were there and he went in to ask his mother if it would be okay if I stayed for dinner that day and I heard a little bit of I noticed that he was back there for kind of a long time and I heard a little bit of talking going on and he came out and told me that well it probably isn't going to work out today and later I found out that what his older brother had said back there was I'm not going to eat lunch with any d-a-m-n religious fanatic ouch I mean you know I was 17 18 years old that ouch gazing stock 
We haven't had it half as bad as some people. Then in verse 34 of chapter 10, he talks about the spoiling of your goods. Hmm. Did you think you were going to get into that when you trusted Christ as Savior? That you'd actually suffer persecution to the point that there would be people who would come and try to take away what was yours. So the writer is talking to these people, and they had made a profession of faith in Jesus, but now they're experiencing significant trials, and some of them were tempted to give up. Some of them felt like it's just not worth it. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had that whispered in your ear? It's just not worth it. You could be in the situation that these people are in here. You see, this is where fear comes in because we're afraid of what being all in, what really living for Jesus entails. We're afraid of that. We have those fears. We might as well just be honest about that and admit that we have those fears because of what it might cost us to really live for Jesus Christ. I was thinking about Job. It just so happened that in my Bible reading, I was reading Job. I still am reading Job. You don't often do that at one setting. And in my Bible reading, I just happened to be there. And I got to thinking about Job so that I don't feel so bad. And I want you to think with me for a few moments. Now, I, I think you probably know the story well enough that you'd may not need to turn to this, but you remember what we're told about Job. I mean, the book hardly starts before we're in, introduced to Job, and he's give, the Bible gives his testimony. It says that he was a man who was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. That is, he spurned it. He was a man who was perfect and upright. He feared God and he spurned evil. In fact, this man was so godly and so conscientious that he when his sons and daughters would get together to feast, he had special prayer because he was concerned, well, what if they step over the edge a little bit and I want to be interceding to God and I want to be praying for them. I mean, this man was all in. And then a scene occurs in this chapter that Job doesn't know anything about. It's totally hidden from his eyes. That there comes a day when the sons of God, those were the angels, came to present themselves before God and there was a snake in the grass there. You have a snake in the grass in heaven? Well, there was that day because Satan came along. And God threw down the gauntlet. Now, I, you know, to me, I'm so chicken that I, my reaction to that is, is, dear God, if you want to challenge Satan about somebody, find somebody, not me. I'm not really looking for that. But God said to Satan when he came that day, what have you been doing? You've been going up and down in all the earth. He's just causing trouble somewhere. Have you considered my servant Job? See, you're so jaded and you're so jaundiced that you can't believe that a person would have integrity and serve me. So what about my servant Job? Have you considered him? He's a perfect man and upright. He repeats the testimony. He fears God and he spurns evil. Have you considered him? And the old slanderer started right in. He said to God, he said, well, pff, pff, yeah, you've blessed him, 
and the Bible does tell us about all the blessings that he had. He had all the camels, he had all the ox, he had all oxen, he had all the donkeys, he had the livestock, he had a family of seven sons and three daughters, he had a wife. I mean, you know, really, looking at it from the standpoint of the day in which he lived and what made a person prosperous and rich, he had it all. And Satan impugns his integrity and his motive by saying to God, well, sure, you've blessed him, you've given him these, all these things, you've made it easy for him to serve you. Take those things away and see what happens. So God said, you're on. And then we join the story about verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And I mean, out of nowhere, who has seen any of the Sabaeans around recently? They came out of nowhere. The Sabaeans fell upon them and took away took them away, yea, and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. This phrase, I only am alone escaped to tell thee, is going to happen about three times. Really? I mean, Satan, the great manipulator, figures out exactly how to turn these events in such a way there's always one that doesn't get killed to come back and give Job the good news. Let me tell you, he's sinister. He's a bad dude, as Will Calkin would say. While he was speaking, watch the timing of this. I mean, it's just like it's designed to be a pile driver. You ever get that way in your life? You know, you feel like, I can't handle this if I don't have anything else. Then something else comes. Well, here comes the next guy. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven. Well, he was wrong. God didn't have anything to do with that fire. This was Satan. Yeah, the fire of God has fallen from heaven. In other words, nothing to make you feel. God's turned against you too. He sent fire down. But God didn't have anything to do with the fire. It was Satan. Burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. How convenient. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, if you think the Sabaeans came out of nowhere, what about the Chaldeans? They made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am alone to tell thee. Third time we hear that phrase. And while he, here's number four, the heaviest blow of all. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am alone escaped to tell thee. There's the fourth time. Where would you be at this point, and where would I be? I don't know, because I'm not there. But I look at this and I see what happened next, that Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Wow. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. I'm glad this book is in the Bible. I'm glad there's somebody like Job to look to that did right, that truly had integrity in his heart. 
whose faith in God was virtually unbreakable because of God's grace. Satan is doing everything he can to pull this man down. He's doing everything he can to throw this temptation up before his face. So this is what you get for being all in. And Job said, I don't understand it. But I can understand that God gave and it's his privilege to take away. And if that's what's going on, I can live with that. Some time passes and comes another day. Here's another scene that Job has no clue. Doesn't know about the first one, doesn't know about the second one. And in they come again, the angels, and along with that, the snake in the grass. And God throws the gauntlet down again. He says, see, you're perverted. You think that nobody would really serve me out of a heart of love and out of a heart of truth, but have you considered my servant Job? In spite of all these things that you've done to provoke me against him, still... He's a man who fears God, who's upright in his heart, and he spurns evil. And Satan isn't done. Satan says, no, no, there's more. Skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Touch him there. Touch him in his health. Touch him in his body and see what you get. And God says, you're on. But you can't take his life. Satan sends these horrible boils that afflict Job from the crown of his head to, the, to his feet. And ultimately we get to a place in the story where I'm not so sure we don't have one of the heavier blows of all of them. Enough to lose your possessions, enough to lose your children, if you can even imagine that. But Satan accesses the people who are closest to Job, the people who have his ear. And his wife comes along and she says to him, do you still retain your integrity? It's not worth it to serve God. You've been all in and look at what it's gotten for you. All our possessions are gone, our children are gone, and you still maintain the integrity of your heart. You must be nuts. Why don't you just curse God and die? It's not worth it was what she was saying. I want to tell you one of the things that I will be eternally grateful for. If the day comes that with Paul I can in some semblance say, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, it will in large measure be for the fact that the person closest to me has never put that temptation in my ear. I waited a long time for her. But I'm telling you, I was rewarded for my wait. God has given me a woman that never once discouraged me in my path of service always sought to build me up, always sought to pray with me, always sought to listen to me. Never came through with this idea, look what it's gotten you to serve God. I don't even understand how that must have affected Job, but he maintained his integrity and he still didn't curse God. The verse 10 of chapter 2, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Verse 11. 
You see, we worry about what's going to happen to us. We see situations like this. I mean, this is heavy stuff. You know anybody that's gone through all of that? No, we know people who have gone through pieces, bits and pieces of it. I've known you people and been here long enough. I've known people who have lost their children or lost one. And as time passed and as we knew one another better and as we had times to visit and talk with one another, I've seen people like that open their heart to me and talk about what that's like. And I've seen the fact that even years and years later, it doesn't still take very much for some tears to come. Some of you have lost a spouse. We have people in this church that God has seen fit in some manner to just allow what is almost virtually beyond our ability to understand of physical sufferings and discouragements and difficulties to come their way. And we admire and magnify the grace of God that is in them. But Satan does his best in these moments, and I like that expression that Will was using this past week. Satan does his best in those moments when we are undergoing those very trials or when we see it in other people to just sort of drip in this particular notion. He used that expression, and I thought about my Mr. Coffee at home. You know, you turn that thing on, and it starts sounding like it's sick. But all it's doing is heating that water, and it, I say it gurgitates it out, whatever it does. If you open the top too soon, it'll get you. And that coffee's in there, and it's throwing that hot water on that coffee. And it causes that coffee to give up the good things that are in it. But you know, people that don't like coffee will tell you something real fast. Coffee's bitter. You know that. Now, I don't know how many of you here train yourself to drink it black. I'm not there. I mean, you're ahead of me in the kingdom. I like coffee, but I'm not drinking it black. It's bitter to me. I don't know how you develop a taste for that. I've tasted other things in my life that I, I don't know how people I get a taste for that. Some of them I'm really glad I never got a taste for. Well, I like a cup of coffee. Ian came in my office this morning. He had a, a cup and it was open and he said, I'm sorry. Is right? I said, no, that's, I already had two this morning. It's not going to tempt me. But you know, till we got done praying and then we got ready to leave and I smelled that. It smelled good. You really smelled good. But I'm telling you this, some people, the trials come and the hot water comes and hits them and out comes bitterness and anger, not something pleasant. Why? Because Satan is just trying to drip in this thought. What kind of thought is he trying to drip in? Well, let's look at those verses from Genesis chapter 3. Can you put those up? Because this is not original. It keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening. And so we go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, and we see what it was like. And Satan, the same snake in the grass, Satan comes up there and he says to Eve, nice garden you got here. I'm just going to try to make this colloquial so we can identify with it. Nice garden you got here. Has God said that you may not eat of every tree in the garden? And she said, why no? God wouldn't do anything like that. He hasn't said that we can't eat of every tree of the garden. There's really only one, that tree over there. We're not supposed to eat of that. God said in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. And the serpent looked at her and he says, no, you won't. The serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. 
Now, before you give him that next verse, let me tell you what's going on. He's dripping a thought in. God hasn't been completely forthright with you. God hasn't been completely honest with you. Have you ever been tempted to think that? Lord, you didn't tell me about this when I signed on. God hasn't been completely honest with you. And then let's look at the next verse, verse number five, I think we're at. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. See how subtle this thought is. What this thought really boils down to is he's saying to Eve, God, to be sure, has given you some of his blessings, all these trees that you can enjoy. But God hasn't given you all of his blessings. In fact, God has given you some of his blessings, but I'll tell you what he's done. He's withheld the best of his blessings. If you ate of that tree, you'd be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. And so he withheld that tree from you. Do do you see the process that's going on? Trying to drip this thought in that God really isn't to be trusted, that God really isn't good, that God's a great cosmic ogre, that God is a great heavenly meanie, and you can't really trust him. And if you go all in, he's likely to ambush you with some kind of a thing that's the worst thing in the world. He's going to call you to go pass out tracks in the Sahara Desert to camel caravans. Satan's sneaky. I thought these observations were interesting. As one person said this, Bible describes Satan in three ways, the tempter, the accuser, the father of lies. He continued, if I were to tempt you, you'd know it. If I were to accuse you, you would know it. But if I were to deceive you, you wouldn't know it. The power of Satan is in the lie. If you remove the lie, you remove the power. Beloved, I'm telling you right now, that's why we need to be in this book. Because Satan is constantly coming along, trying to use trials and difficulties in our lives to drip in this notion, ah, see what what it gets you to be dedicated, see what it gets you to serve the Lord. I wouldn't be all in, not me. I know better. And Satan is constantly trying to deceive us about God as he did Eve. God isn't good. God isn't fair. Or take this example for if you suffer with sickness, the devil wants you to believe that God caused it and therefore God isn't good. Or a disaster afflicts you and you want, he wants to convince us God sent it as a sign of punishment that he's mad at you. This is all the time happening, beloved. So we look at these types of things, and they're scary. Their fears create a fear within our hearts. Or, and I, I don't have time for this, I've spent more time than I can really here at this point, but what if you went to Job 3 and you got Job's, or Job 4 and you got Job's friends? Do you see what I was saying? I only want to stay on this long enough to make this point. Do you see what I'm talking about, about how Satan is so skillful and so sly that he's always looking for someone close to us. Someone who has our ear. So it didn't work with Mrs. Job. But now he has three friends. All I can really tell you is I hope you get better friends than those guys. But sometimes, see, we know about that. Sometimes we see that. Sometimes we see people who were supposed to be friends and they 
prove themselves otherwise or they do things to us that we feel and Satan sort of comes along and he says, see? Everybody is like this sooner or later, you know. He's so jaded, he just can't, he just, it just doesn't comport with Satan that someone could really honestly, in his heart, be all in, not for gain, not for profit, not because I'm going to get my name in the paper because of it, but just because God saved me, he did a work in my heart, and I might not be perfect, but you know I really want to be all in. I really want to serve him with my heart. I really want to follow him with my life. Satan's going to do his best to try to come at you as this whole thing. But let's look a little bit now at the assurance and the, the answers and the assurance because I think we need to be sure we have adequate time for the text itself. So you're coming back to Hebrews chapter 6, and maybe you're just still there, but it says that God is not unfaithful. I'm sorry, it says that God is not unrighteous. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And I have a couple of things that I hope I've set the stage for you thus far that I want to talk about. Before we really get to the assurance, I got to tell you some things that God has already told us. Because the Lord is never dishonest probably shouldn't have thought about it but I, I mean i can't even remember the, i can't even ever remember that i listened to this song but it came to my mind the title of it and god didn't promise us a rose garden and when we look into god's word god has been completely honest about what the christian experience is like god never told us that it's just always going to be trouble free god never told us this wealth and health and prosperity gospel that's kind of a a thing that people have come up with so that you give them money on the television or so that you have a big crowd in your church, this health and wealth gospel, God never said anything like that to us at all. He's been completely honest and forthright and told us that there are going to be times in life when the way isn't easy. Well, just think about this for a minute. There are times in life when the way isn't easy for lost people too. So which would you rather have? Everybody gets something in life. Which would you rather have? Just think about it if Satan is trying to whisper in your ear and telling you, don't go all in. Would you rather be out there lost and not knowing God and not, not having anyone to give assurance and help in your life and face it on your own? Or would you rather face it with God? Especially knowing the things that I'm going to show you right now. So first of all is Acts 14.22. Let's have a look at that. We don't so much need to turn. I just have these verses where you can get to them by looking real quickly. So let me tell you what the context of this verse is. That Paul is on the missionary journey, and they're coming to the end of the cities that they ministered to on the first missionary journey. And he went from Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, but what would be called Pisidian Antioch in Turkey. He went from Antioch, and they came down to Iconium, and then they went to Lystra, and then they went to where we're going tonight, the Derby. Went to Derby. So when he writes this, they're at Derby, and they're determining that now they need to go back through all these cities where they've preached and won people to Christ and do this, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And what was Paul's message? Not so much health and wealth. He said, and let them know that through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. There's going to be tribulation. 
You know, the guy that was saying that just got stoned at Lystra. Just think about that in the, in the context of this verse. He gets to Lystra, which is the next to the last place, and he's stoned. Boy, that's a great advertisement for Christianity, right? I'm going to go down to the recruiting office and sign up now because I can't wait for somebody to stone me. Listen, I remember when I was a kid. I don't know if I was lippy, probably, in this particular case, but I think these guys, they were bigger and older than I were, and they were just jerks. Everybody encountered that. I guess you can still encounter that. They just wanted to pick on somebody that was younger than they were. And here I was coming down an alley. I think maybe I was on my paper route, and one of them picked up a stone and threw it at me. I'm, buddy, I'm telling you, not this 2B Mickey Mouse stuff out here. Like those ballast stones that came off the old roof up here, big honker, hit me in the back of the head. About knocked me off my bike. I went home and told my dad, and... He and my brother went down to that place and there was a little discussion. But I can tell you this, that stone didn't feel good and that was nothing like what this was. And this man whom God raises up from this, whether he was actually dead or whether he wasn't, it's a miracle. He's not like he's six months laid up in the hospital. They were all standing around thought he was dead. Remember, did you read the story? They were all standing around thought he was dead. He got up. And he said, boys, we have got work to do. They had to go back now to these cities and confirm, but we're going to, I mean, we're going to tell these people, look, you've trusted Christ as Savior, but there are going to be trials along the way. You need to know that. Look at the next verse. Because God doesn't stop there because God tells us something that's really important. God tells us, when I send these trials, they're not random. When I send these trials, they're not arbitrary. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of things. That can cause us joy. Peter says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, here's the words, if need be. Oh, not random, not arbitrary, something God knows I need. I'm glad I'm not making those decisions because I don't see it that way. I don't see that I need all this stuff. I don't see that I need all these problems, but God says, well, you know I'm still working in your life. Let's look at the next verse. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well, it gives me hope. It means that if I understand what the way is like and understand that God is in control and he's just bringing into my life what he knows is necessary, that if I find his grace to be joyful and to be victorious, at the end, it will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And then in James 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, let's look there. He gives us some insight into the process and how does all of this work. And James says, my brethren, count it all joy. It doesn't say it is joy. He says you have to make yourself think about it that way. When you fall into various or diverse temptations, what do you know? Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. That's endurance. It's the ability to stick there and stick with it. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to endure. He wants us to have the grit in our craw that we need to be faithful to him. Is there another verse that we have there? But let patience, so there's a process, 
as this patience builds in my life, let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect, that is mature, not lacking anything. God doesn't want us to lack anything. He wants us to be complete. We have another verse, because here's where the Here's where the process ends. Paul says this now. To me, I really like this because clearly Paul was a southerner. He says, I reckon. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The suffering's just a while. It's real, no minimizing it, but it's just for a while. It's just as need be. It's just as I know is necessary because I'm building in your life Christ-likeness. And when you get to the end, far from life being a disappointment and far from thinking that the way you were going to go before versus the way that I represent when I ask you to be all in, that you've lost something and you're not going to be satisfied, far from it. Not only do I satisfy you and give you grace as you go along, but at the end... It's found unto my praise, my honor, and my glory when I'm fully conformed to the image of Christ. But you know, beloved, we need encouragement. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to tell us. He says, God is an unrighteous. Now, did you hear a while ago that I misquoted that? I, I tend to do that. I tend to say God is not unfaithful when I, when I think of that first. God is not unfaithful. But it doesn't say that. It says God is not unrighteous. It's true that God is not unfaithful, but he chooses to say in this verse, God is not unrighteous. Why is that so? Because, you know what? Some real injustices really occur in this life. People overlook things you've done. People don't say thank you for things you've done. People don't stop long enough to figure out what it really costs, what it really means to do what you do, and... It happens in all phases of life. Constantly it seems like it's happening and sometimes it just stinks. And sometimes it just isn't fair. But he says, you know what? God isn't right like that. God never forgets. God never forgets. You know, God tells us he's not unfaithful to forget your work and labor. I like that word labor because it's in Greek it's kapos, it's the word toil. So ergon work is just a general word and everybody works one way or another. Sometime you got to work, right? But to toil, in other words, that sort of brings our focus on the fact that, you know, sometimes out there doing what you do and serving the Lord isn't easy. It's, it's hard. What you're doing is sometimes hard. God recognizes that. God knows that. And he's not unrighteous to forget it. Look, we have some encouragement to that effect. Let's just have a little look here. First of all, let me tell you this. When it says that you minister to the saints and do minister, so we think, well, I'm not a minister. But you know what? It's just the word to serve. It's diakoneo. And if you go back to the first place in the New Testament where we have people who are deacons, in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, that's where it comes from. Diakoneo is the deacons. That's where we get the word deacon from. What were they doing? What was their contribution at that point? They served tables. I tell you what, that to me is a real encouragement. means that you don't have to be up there in the limelight. I, I was going to kid people on Friday night. You know, I watched through the week, and some of those young people up there play about four instruments or more, and I think to myself, it just isn't fair. 
Somehow I got out of the line when they passed that talent out. I just, you know, you seem like they just do it so effortlessly and go from one to the other, and I'm thinking, holy cow. I got out of line when they passed out all of that. But you know what? Not everybody is up there. Not everybody is seen. Not everybody is noticed. And think about what it is around this church. You got guys back there doing the technology for us, and the only time you even look is when that thing squawks like it did this morning. You know, that sounded to me like Goliath's hearing aid. Whew, that was a loud one. Maybe we do that to be sure you're awake. I don't know, but I just am so thankful for people who do work like that, and nobody even looks except when there's a problem. But I'm going to say thank you because it means a lot to me. And there are people in the nursery right now, and nobody sees them, and nobody thinks about them until some kid squawks in the service. Then you say, don't they know we have a nursery? But the ladies go back there. Friday night, Christy came up to me and she said, is your wife in the nursery? I said, yes, she's in the nursery. She said, well, I'll go back when we're done and relieve her. I said, you know, really, she's fine. I'm so thankful for that. I knew she was fine with that. I knew she wouldn't feel passed over or neglected. She probably volunteered for that night. But there are people that do that. Day in and day out, they do that for us. Sunday in and Sunday out, they do that for us. You get to Master Club on Wednesday night and these people put in all this time. These people who sing up here, you know, they didn't sing this by the gentle waters. It didn't just pop out of the air. That was really great this morning. That didn't just happen. People worked on that. People put time on that. Caleb directed that. People played the instruments. And how many times do we see we're unrighteous? We're unjust. We forget this stuff. We take it for granted. We never really say thank you to these people for the things they do for us. But God is not unrighteous to forget. Let me show you some encouragements along this line. Look at that Luke 12, 6, I think it is. Can you show us that, fellas? Look for the one that's Luke 12. It's there. Okay. What do you think about this? You just wonder why I chose that song this morning, His Eye is on the Sparrow. What's that say? Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. You mean to tell me God's got track of all the sparrows in this world? I mean, you might think the blue jays. You know, the majestic kind of looking ones that they put on those winter postcards. The cardinals. Maybe a robin. But a sparrow? When I grew up, we called them little tweet birds. Tweet birds. I mean, the fields were full of them, just like your yard sometimes is, and they make those nests and so forth right where you don't want them. Little tweet birds. Insignificant, no spectacular color to them. They're just out there doing their thing. Some of them have pretty sweet songs. They're just out there doing their thing. Not one of them falls, and God doesn't know. This song we sang this morning, I got to inquiring about the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. I was glad Tim didn't, well, he could have saved me time. He could have told you the story then. But this was written by a woman by the name of Sevilla Martin, and you know how this came about was, she, by the way, she also authored the song, God Will Take Care of You. Somehow she was living in Johnson City, New York. Somehow she became burdened for this bedridden saint of God that was over some distance away in Elmira. 
And she just felt God was leading her and leading her, and she needed to go visit this woman. And she didn't really know that much, but she just felt impressed that God wanted her to do this. And so she tells it in her own words. She finds herself at the bedside of this woman, and here are her own words as to how she wrote this song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. She says, I wrote the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, in the company of a bedridden saint in the city of Elmira, New York. I was reading and singing to her, and during our conversation, I chanced to ask her if she did not sometimes get discouraged. She answered, Mrs. Martin, how can I be discouraged when my heavenly Father watches over each little sparrow and I know he loves and cares for me? Those were her words. Mrs. Martin said she got pencil and paper and in a few moments had written down the verses to his eyes on the sparrow. No less a person than Charles Gabriel sent it to, set it to music it was sung for the first time publicly in one of R.A. Torrey's crusades in the year 1905. And from there, it's gone all over the world to reassure people, if God's eye is on the sparrow, don't you think his eye is on you? Let's look at the next one. So much as a cup of cold water, Jesus says, and whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I send to you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. People might forget. People might not know. People, you do things all the time no one sees. No one even really knows. Except God knows. And he's not unrighteous to forget. Can you imagine something is seemingly insignificant as a sparrow. Can you imagine something seemingly as insignificant as giving someone a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple? That God has that tracked? You know, sometimes I get these bogus emails, except I know it's true, but it's just, I don't know why they're sending them to me, as if I were a truck driver. And, you know, they got these trucks all tricked out now with all this technology that you know, the driver can't really get by with too much because they know exactly where you are when you're there how long it took you some of them are even set to report if you go too much over the speed limit all this technology see and that to me is astounding really that they can do that but what's more astounding to me is that God tracks my every move I don't even make a move and God knows and I don't even do something that sometimes maybe I wouldn't even think about and God saw that God tracks that and God knows that. Even to the extent, watch this one, Psalm 56, verse 8. The psalmist says, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? Even the tears. You know, I've often thought tears are a universal language. There are times when you you just really don't know how to communicate or people maybe don't know your sincerity or something like that and maybe you don't even speak their language. And all of a sudden somehow tears come and it's almost like everybody understands they communicate something. They communicate a burdened heart, a troubled heart. And sometimes we're tempted to think, doesn't anybody care? Nobody even knows. 
Like the old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, but then the spiritual continues. Nobody knows but Jesus. You mean he has all my tears tracked? Wow, he must be different than that God that Satan keeps trying to tell me about. He must be different than that kind of a God, the God that sort of puts me on this road to serve him and then sends all this grief into my life and leaves me alone when I'm in my darkest moment. He must be different than that. He must not be like that. He must be everything he said he was. He must be good. He must love me. He must care for me. He must know I need to be there. But he promises to be with me in the process. And then there are times, and I don't have much time for this, but I have to tell you this. You can stone me later. There are times when it just seems like God is asleep. Did you ever notice that? I mean, the disciples thought so, and Jesus really was. He was asleep in the boat. And they said, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus rose up and said to the winds and the waves, hush, be muzzled. Get off my guy's back. I was reading this week in Esther. You like Esther? I like Esther. I like that book. And God struck me with something that just about blew me away. Mordecai, do you remember him? He's her cousin. And it comes about on a certain day that Mordecai gets wise to these two guys that were traitors. This would be about like having two guys on the president's secret service protection team that were traitors. And they were going to look for an opportunity to do in the president. And in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, in those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, two of his servants, Big Than and Teresh, just think like Benedict Arnold, of those that kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai. And Mordecai told Esther the queen, and Esther certified thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles of the King. It was written down. Just like I'm telling you, God writes this down. But we don't read anything about anything happening to Mordecai because of this. We don't read about any reward. We don't read about any recognition. You would think that if Esther had certified it, but somehow it escaped the king's attention. He didn't really know about that. And all the while now, this plot starts going with Haman, and he starts figuring out how he can kill all the Jews because he doesn't like Mordecai. And he does all this business. I think you're familiar with the story of the book. And then all of a sudden, on the night before the second feast, when Esther was going to finally tell the king what her petition was, he can't sleep. I love it. And I can't either. So misery loves company. But he was awake that night on purpose. God made that man restless. He didn't know why. So he thought, well, I don't have any Lunesta. Seems like my Ambien prescription ran out. So he called a couple of his servants and said, bring those dry, tedious record books. That'll put me out very quickly. Bring them and start reading them to me. I'll go out in 15 minutes or less. 
And they read therein and found written, Esther 6 and verse 2, that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. Uh Uh-oh. See, in this world, it happens. It's not fair. But when the king found out about it, Haman came in the next morning. He thought he was going to give his petition for the Jews. And so he comes in and he says, the king says to him, he says, Hey, Haman, if I really wanted to honor somebody, if I really wanted to recognize somebody, how would I go about doing that? Haman says, well, I'll tell you how I'd do it. I'd get the king's horse, and I'd get some of the king's apparel, and I'd have people go through the streets and, and have this person arrayed in some of the king's royal clothing and on one of the king's royal horses and say, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. And Ahasuerus looks at him and says, sounds like a plan. Go do that for Mordecai. I read that and about fell over. All of a sudden, God spoke to my heart. God caused me to realize there is a greater king than Ahasuerus. And it's all in his record books, what you and I have done for Jesus Christ in this life. And it's worth it to be all in because he doesn't miss a tear. He doesn't miss a heartache. He doesn't miss a dark moment. He's always with us and faithful It's all recorded, and one day at the appearing of Jesus Christ, it will be found in his praise, honor, and glory. I'd rather be there. So, God who seems to be asleep, and it's not true at all, his providence is fast at work, saving up that deed to be recognized at the time when he can get the most out of it for his glory, and when he can bring us the greatest joy. Wouldn't it have been more joyful and more meaningful to God's glory had it been recognized in the beginning or when Haman's plot fully developed and God was able to turn this right around on Haman's head? No, God wasn't asleep. His providence was fast at work, saving up all of those things that Mordecai did for the moment that it would bring him most glory and most honor and bring the most joy to Mordecai and the Jewish people. And that same God is my God. And I want to close this message today by simply telling you this. God will give us grace we don't deserve. And at the end, God will give us rewards we don't deserve. So I'm reaching out to you today. You're here today and struggling. You were in these meetings and Will was preaching and you struggled. You struggled with a decision. God was speaking to your heart. You might be a teenager and you're really wrestling with this issue. What does it really mean if I'm going to be all in? And I'm not sure I want to go there. And I want to tell you, go. Because God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which He have shown unto His name in that ye minister unto the saints and do minister. So whether you wait tables or help somebody set up tables over at the activity center or you're in the youth group and Pastor Adam needs something and you do it out of a heart of love or you serve this church in some way and because maybe you're a teenager nobody really notices it and says thank you for it 
or you're in the nursery and those kids throw up all over you and no one knows what kind of a day you had except maybe when you get home you're going to tell your husband about it. And God has seen every one of those things. And he's not unrighteous. They sang a song this week that I have really appreciated introducing to our congregation. I spoke to Will about it. I said, don't you just love that song? I said, we never sung that song here. It was in our hymn book when we got rejoiced, and I don't think people knew it. And I saw that song one day, looked at it, looked at the text, and said, we have to know that song. We have to learn that song. It's the song we're going to sing in just a few moments for our closing song. Jesus, draw me ever nearer. They sang, we sang that one night in the meetings. So I got to digging deeper. Where did that come from? I know who wrote it because I can look at the hymn book and see who wrote it. I can see that Keith Getty and Margaret Becker wrote the words. I can see all that, but I just was curious, and you know I found an interview on the Internet that came from Nancy Lee DeMoss in one of her Revive Our Hearts situations. And she was interviewing them about this song. And she said to the Getty, she said, this is Nancy speaking. Should I have to tell you that when you sang a song this morning, you were singing the song, Jesus, Draw Me Ever Nearer. I leaned over to one of the people that was in the room with us and said, that's my song. It's my message. I think of a number of times as I have been weary in the battle or to use the metaphor you use in this song, laboring through the storm, God has used this text to minister grace and strength to my own heart to press on. Keith, she said, how did you write, how did this song come to be written? He answered, well, it was back in 2001. I actually wrote this with Margaret Becker. We wanted to write a song which looked at the reality of Christ in suffering, or indeed the reality of suffering in life, or the reality of suffering as a part of our worship. We go back to the Psalms as a guidebook to what songwriting should be and of course 50 out of the 150 one-third exactly are laments songs that are rugged and earthy and honest and look at every negative part of life in almost every case they resolve to this understanding of God or resolve not to a happy ending but to an acknowledgement that God you are just you are holy you see all things and I will trust you we wanted to write a song, he continued, which captured that same reality. We've had an enormous, listen to this. What happens if I go all in? He says, we've had an enormous amount of fallout in Britain of people who have grown up in church and then suffering or a bad situation happens in their life. And instead of that drawing them closer to God or strengthening them in their faith, which is what we're told and promised by Christ and in the New Testament letters, what happens is that they completely lose it. They fall away because for some reason they imagine that worship is the magic salve or cream that's going to heal every wound. Nancy said, make you feel better. Keith, to fix every tear like you can order it from a pharmaceutical. The reality is that Christ is in us throughout these sufferings. So really... That's where it came from. And of course, the chorus each time resolves towards heaven, as the Psalms do. Nancy said, you're saying that there's purpose in our suffering. It's not just a matter of surviving. There's something beautiful and something to come out of this. There's purpose. And there's end to our suffering, not here and now, but then and there. So there's hope. 
There's something to look forward to. At the end of my heart's testing, with your likeness, let me wake. I think it speaks to the sanctifying, transforming power of suffering, the refining of the fire, Keith's wife, Kristen, to bring us perseverance, to bring us love, to strengthen our faith, to fill us with hope. Nancy, to make us like Jesus. Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I labor through the storm. You have called me to this passage, and I'll follow, though I'm worn. May this journey bring a blessing. May I rise on wings of faith, and at the end of my heart's testing, with your likeness, let me wake. So I want to reach out to you. Don't be afraid to go all in. He'll give you grace you don't deserve, and at the end of your heart's testing, He'll give you rewards you don't deserve.